Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Would you warmly welcome uh, Pastor Ben Corson from Applegate Christian Fellowship and Hope Generation. Come and share with us tonight. Uh, we love you, brother. I love you so much. It, it was so fun walking into the green room and talking to Jeff tonight because the, right now the world is so intense. Everything's intense. And so just getting to talk with the gills and, and Jeff, I really, really love you guys so much. Like it was just relieving to see your hope, your joy, this anchor of stability and realizing the gravity of the moment while not being crushed by it, but actually exuding this joy. It reminds me of Paul and actually we're going to study him when he was in prison. He writes the, the joy epistle in Philippians. And you really remind me of that, Jeff, no matter what's happening in Los Angeles, you just have this joy exuding from you. And I love it. I love it. So you're a gift to us. You're a gift. Oh, I'm excited for tonight, guys. I haven't been with you in a year and a half. So it's been a hot minute and I'm glad, I'm glad I get to share with you. So I got to show people there is hope in LA. Can I do that really quick? Would you guys all say hi on the count of three? One, two, three. Amazing. I love you guys. This is going to be fun. I'm really excited. Goodness, I'm excited. So would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter three. Now I want to give you some background to uh, what's going on in our culture. And then I want to dive in theologically to what's going on in this text. So number one, Right now, nearly 50% of Americans are reporting that the coronavirus has impacted their mental health. Oh, by the way, before I forget, that band was really amazing. Jeff, you were telling me that there's like two 16-year-olds, the drummer and the keyboard player. Like, that's that's gnarly. Wow. Um, Right now, nearly half of Americans are reporting that the coronavirus has impacted their mental health. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation poll, a federal emergency hotline for those in emotional distress augmented and increased by 1,000% this April as compared to last April. So even without the coronavirus, depression and suicide is the issue of our day. In fact, there's a suicide once every 40 seconds around the world. According to USA Today, there's 123 suicides a day. In our culture, there are twice as many suicides as murders. In 2017, suicide was the second leading cause of death in my age group. Sociologists now believe that we are the most depressed generation on record. I don't know who interviewed the 14th century Burgundians to confirm that, but we are a very depressed generation. And I want to clear up two misnomers when it comes to depression. Here's one, that if you struggle with depression, that means you're weak. Have you read the Bible? Let's, let's just walk through the Bible characters, their stories of going through either depression, suicide ideation, or emotional distress. So number one, let's start off with Moses. Moses literally said to God, God, if you continue to treat me this way, take my life. Wow, what audacity and hootsmah for Moses to say that. If you continue to treat me this way, take my life. That's what Moses said. Let's fast forward to Elijah. Elijah could face down 850 prophets of Baal and the groves, respectively, 
But then one angry woman sent him running for his life. One angry woman sent him. He could, he could face 850 prophets of Baal in the groves, cutting themselves, dancing on the altar when he was in a firefight with Baal, this Syrophoenician fertility god. He could face them down, but one angry woman, and he's running with his tail between his legs. He somehow outruns this chariot where Jezebel's driving it. Now, the Bible says that Jezebel, she was a, you know, the spirit of Jezebel in Revelation. Jezebel, when she died, she painted her face. So I just picture her, like, right before she died, she painted her face. I just kind of picture her like the female it clown, you know, just like with this, with this painted clown-like face chasing Elijah. But then when she died, the dogs ate her body except for her, like, wrists and her a- ankles. There's a gnarly story in her palm. But be that as it may, Jezebel's chasing Elijah. Elijah then, after winning this deity battle, this firefight against uh, Baal, when he was fighting for Jehovah, he could bravely face down this enmity and adversity and opposition. But watch this. When he gets into a cave, sitting under a juniper broom tree, he says, God, after he outruns Jezebel's chariot, he says, God, take my life. I want to die. I am no better than my fathers. And everyone has bowed the knee to Baal, failing to realize that God had consecrated thousands who had not kissed Baal. But Elijah was suicidal and asked God to kill him like euthanasia, mercy killing. He wanted to die. And what did God do after Elijah prayed? He sent some ravens to feed him and he sent uh, some angels to feed him. And watch this. He made him take a nap. Friends, when you're depressed, there are very few things a good prayer time, a good meal, and a good nap won't solve. Can I just say that? What we learn from that story in Elijah is when you're tired, isolated, and hungry, he was by himself, he was tired after outrunning a chariot, and he was hungry, God had to feed him. When he was tired, when he was isolated, when he was hungry, that's when he became suicidal. Don't overthink if you're hangry. Instead, take a good nap, eat a good meal, have a good prayer time. There are a few things that that won't solve. I'll just say that uh, as a freebie. But basically, Elijah was suicidal. Let's look over at David. One minute, he's dancing in his linen ephod before the Ark of the Covenant. And the next minute, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was borderline, if not bipolar. Let's go over to Job. Job said, I abhor myself. He said, I cursed the day that I was born. He said, I wish I was a stillborn. Job was so despairing that he wanted to die. Let's fast forward over to Jonah. Leads the greatest spiritual awakening in Assyrian history. And after he leads this revival, he's sitting under a plant. A worm eats that plant. And Jonah says, God, I want to die. And God says, Jonah, why do you want to die? And Jonah says, because a worm ate my plant. Friends, when you're suicidal, you're not seeing things clearly. C.S. Lewis said, no one can see the world clearly when their eyes are blurred by tears. If you look over it, let's fast forward to Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle said, and I quote, we despaired even of life. And then let's go over to Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was called the Son of Sorrows. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Man of Sorrows said to his disciples, and I quote, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. We're not talking about some doldrums or slogging through the slew of despond and having a bad day. We're saying, Jesus, we're talking about deep emotional distress, so much so that doctors say he suffered hematidosis, where the capillaries in his face burst due to extreme stress, and he was sweating blood through his pores, saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. 
So the fact that a lot of people say, if you're depressed, you're weak, they haven't read the scriptures deeply enough because some of the best Bible characters struggled with depression. Now, that's one misnomer I want to really remove the stigma and taboo from this uh, projection that we cast on people. Sometimes in the church who are depressed, you say, oh, you're depressed obviously because you're sinning or because you're doing something wrong. Now, on the other hand, so clearing that up, on the other hand, you have people who say, well, we've done a good job in the last decade, 10 years or so, you know, really removing the stigma and taboo from depression. But, you know, because we've removed the stigma and taboo, I know I'm just going to be my authentic self. It's very hipster and trendy to say, I'm just a four on the Enneagram and I, I'm just going to learn to live with depression. It's my authentic self. I'm not going to have cognitive dissonance. I'm going to be who I am. I guess that, I guess, I guess I'm just going to learn to live with depression. You know, that's very trendy to say right now. And that's where I take a hard turn from a lot of trendy hipsters and millennials my age is I say, why would we live with depression when our God is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, he has the healing balm of Gilead and there is no disease beyond his ability to heal. The psalmist didn't say in Psalm 42, why are you cast down on my soul? Keep up the good work, like keep staying cast down. Good job, your authentic self. No, he said, why are you cast down on my soul? Put your hope in God. And friends, I want to tell you, and this is, this is where I, I really differ from a lot of people in my generation, and I will say this with absolute conviction. I believe God can heal depression. I believe we can heal, de- defeat depression through the power of God. I believe that when we put our hope in God, depression can be defeated. I absolutely believe this. And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you, and I'm going to be here at the book table afterwards if you'd like to go there. I literally am going to go over 11 chapters as we go through the scriptures from my book that will help you practically to defeat depression. Because I want to give you practical handles. If you're depressed or you know somebody who's depressed or you have anxiety or worry or suicide ideation, this is a message for you. But again, we're just going to do a very short or overview. You can read about it. I'd love to meet you here after. But, but be that as it may, here's what I want to share with you. The reason I am so passionate about defeating depression is because that has been the arch nemesis that almost took me down. After 10 years of suicide ideation, where I almost committed suicide two or three times, after 10 years of chronic depression, my, my counselor literally said, Ben, you have one of the most difficult cases of depression I've ever had to treat. So I don't want you to think I'm just coming up here saying stuff out of left field, the deep weeds and the tall grass. This is something that is not hear my words, it's touch my wounds. I believe our scars become our stars. I believe that people are impressed by our strengths, but they connect with our weaknesses. So I want to let you know the reason I'm passionate about this is because I've seen God heal depression in my own life. And if God could heal me, he can heal anybody. Let me say that again. If God could heal me, he can heal anybody. Why do you think I live on airplanes? Like, do you, why do you think I love traveling even during COVID? Because I really want the world to hear this message. Russia believes they found the cure to COVID-19. They hawk it as Sputnik 5 Global News. If somebody was a social activist and they found the cure to HIV, they would shout it from the rooftops. If a medical scientist found the cure to cancer, he would shout it from the rooftops. Well, I believe I found the cure to depression and it's putting your hope in God. And that's why I live on airplanes sharing this message because I believe it with all of my heart. And this is the deal. This is the deal. After my brother passed away, And after my sister passed away, I got diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder just from these environmental things that were happening in my life. 
My good friend, Jared, who's a pastor, I was literally talking to his family the day this happened before it even happened, having no idea what state of mind he was in that day, how bad it was. But my good friend, Jared, he, he committed suicide. I started to have these regular panic attacks, not to mention I have this stalker that follows me around. Uh, he did it to my dad when I was a kid, and now he does it to me. Literally, I was doing a digital event in Florida a few weeks ago. He was protesting so loud that he caused a car accident in Florida over this event I was doing. And it's, it's gnarly. I went through a romantic heartbreak after an eight-year relationship that left me literally convulsing, feeling like I'd never be happy again. So I, I just want to tell you, I believe that God can heal depression. But I also believe, I also believe that it's going to be a battle. Friends, the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Some people are like, is it about brain science or is it about spirituality? I'm like, why would we, why would we divorce science from God? Like Christians invented science. You know that, right? Like William of Ockham, Roger Bacon, seven, 800 years ago, they were monks who invented the scientific method. So I believe that the transrational psychospiritual forces are playing on our neurobiochemistry, which is just a simple way of saying, I believe the enemy fights us on the battlefield of our mind. And so the reality is this is going to be a fight. Exodus 15.3 says God is a man of war. Isaiah says no weapon formed against us will prosper. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. So we're in a fight. Friends, what we don't need is to go to more people to get all their pity and and we don't need to get people to feel sorry for us. We don't need to go to more people to get their pity. We need to go into the presence of the Prince of Peace to get his power. We need to be strengthened. We need to go Navy SEAL Team 6, DEFCON 1, MI5, Paratrooper, Green Beret, Army Ranger, Delta Force, Chris Kyle, American Sniper, Marcus Luttrell, Lone Survivor, Chad Williams, Seal of God, Heroic Stoic, Joyful Soldier, Happy Warrior, Fight a Good Fight, Wage a Good Warfare, Go Hunt Some Demons, Stand at the Gates of Hades, and Redirect Traffic. That's how we think. We do not think like the rest of the world. The rest of the world is depressed right now. We have to give them the answer. We have to show them that we have hope in God. And what a cool mission. I'm not saying like, oh guys, what a bummer. No, what a sick mission. We get to show our generation, which is lost to depression, what hope in God looks like. So turn with me, my friends, to Ephesians chapter three, as we explore this battle that we're in and how to defeat the dark Lord of depression. Jesus called the enemy the prince of the power of the air. He called him the god of this world. And I like to call depression the dark lord of depression, but I believe we can beat him. Now, I want to give you some quick context to what's happening in this passage. Paul here is writing to the church of Ephesus from Rome. Now, we know that Paul was in prison in Rome. Some archaeologists believe they've actually found where Paul was when he wrote this. It could be that we found his prison. It's actually a hole in the ground. And back then you would stack prisoners on top of each other and you would separate them only by grades. So picture a bunch of men stacked on top of each other. Now I'm not trying to be crude here, but I want you to understand how hard this was for Paul. Back then there wasn't in these, there, it wasn't like today post Johnny Cash civil reform, prison reform, so you can lift weights and watch ESPN in jail. Back then it was there wasn't running water. There weren't hot meals. There wasn't the kind of sanitation that we have today. Back then, as these prisoners are stacked on top of each other in grates and a hole in the ground, think if you're the guy on the bottom, what does that mean? 
when the guy on the top goes to the bathroom, what happens to you on the bottom? I mean, we're talking about horrific, horrific conditions. We're not like, oh, Paul's sitting in jail and he's watching ESPN. No, this is brutal. This is brutal for Paul. And Paul, he's writing to the church of Ephesus. Now, contrary and conversely, diametrically opposed to Paul's situation, Ephesus was a very wealthy city. Ephesus was very, in fact, it's one of the great archaeological digs in history. You can go walk the same tiles, friends, the same tiles that Paul walked on. I've been there before in Ephesus, and it's beautiful, beautiful marble. It was known as the Bank of Asia Minor. It had about half a million people, even 2,000 years ago, massive population. It was known as the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. It was known as the Bank of Asia Minor. It was very luxuriant. That's why Paul uses a lot of currency terms like inheritance and fullness and unsearchable riches of Christ. He talks about a lot of like economic terms metaphorically to depict what spirituality looks like because it was a very rich, rich place, very luxuriant. Uh, there was a temple there that was devoted to the goddess of fertility, Artemis, who is also called Diana. And uh, it took 220 years to build this temple. It was one of the wonders of the world. And it, it, was, it was fraught with spirituality, very similar to LA. Crystals, crystals will make me feel better, right? Like, like LA is very spiritual. So was Ephesus. It was a very spiritual city, which is why Paul talks more about principalities and powers, spirits, angels, and demons per capita in this book than any of his other New Testament books. So he's writing to a very spiritual people. Not only that, but there was an arena there that would sit, it was a a theater really, that would seat about 25,000 to 50,000 people. So we're talking about a very influential city, not just historically, economically, but even religiously. Uh, Ephesus was nicknamed the third Christian capital behind Jerusalem and Antioch. It was known as the third Christian capital because all of the churches of Asia Minor were started through the funnel and channel of Ephesus. In fact, when Jesus was addressing the seven churches in chapters two and three of Revelation, all those churches that he addressed started through the church of Ephesus. So just, there's your context. That's what's happening. Paul's in prison, writing to this luxuriant spiritual city. And here's what he says. Ephesians chapter three, verse 14. You guys there? You guys in Ephesians three fourteen? Are you guys doing okay? Okay, cool. Isn't this great? Like we're in like under these Christmas lights and living the dream. You guys live in LA. Do you feel this temperature? It's amazing. It's amazing. Jeff looks over at me and he's like, are you cold? I'm like, no, I'm from Oregon. You know, I'm from Oregon. <laughs> Ephesians three fourteen. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Wow. Picture him in prison. Somehow he manages to bow his knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven, that's known as church triumphant theologically, and earth, that's church militant, is named. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Elsewhere, Paul called this the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here it is, verse 16 of Ephesians 3, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Let me say that again. To be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. The book of Ephesians, theologians call it the Swiss Alps of the New Testament. Theologians also call it the Grand Canyon of the Bible. Why? Because the Grand Canyon is perspectival. You have height, width, breadth, and depth. 
And Paul says in this very chapter that his prayer was that they would know the height, width, breadth, and depth of the love of God which passes knowledge. The early Christians in the early church historically, they would actually take little crosses and they would decorate their homes with them. And on the four sides of the cross, they would use those verses of Paul, those words of Paul, height, width, breadth, and depth on the four sides of the cross. So it's been called the Grand Canyon of the New Testament. It was actually used in their Christian art, the very language and flowing golden eloquence of Paul here. So, so this has been called the Swiss Alps of the New Testament, the Grand Canyon of the Bible. And watch this. Nearly 50% of the book of Ephesians is either a prayer, a prayer request, or a prayer report. Here Paul is praying from a prison for this church that what? They would be strengthened with might through the power of the Spirit and the inner man. Right now, Lord, I pray over this church. I pray over South Bay that you would strengthen this church by the power of your Spirit in the inner man. So friends, we're going to do this right now. We're going to do this right now. We're going to arm you to the teeth. We're going to strengthen you with might, with the scriptures, with 11 weapons to defeat the dark Lord of depression. These are the 11 things God used in my life to help me defeat depression too. You ready for this? So we're going to cover 11 chapters from the book, only very briefly, kind of an overview. Number one, here's the number one thing that helped me defeat depression. Number one, prayer walks. Okay, let's strengthen you with these weapons. Number one, prayer walks. Paul in Ephesians 6 actually uses prayer as a weapon to defeat the principalities and powers. Paul said we're to take up the shield of faith, which can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Back in ancient warfare, they would actually dip their arrows in the venom of asps and snakes, and they would shoot them at the enemy, and if the arrow pierced you, it would burn like fire. So too, we have snake venom arrows from the serpent, as it were, if you're picking up these metaphors, coming at us. And we hold up the shield of faith to quench these darts that would burn like fire. How do we do this? Well, Paul goes on to say, after listing all the armor of God, he then says, we're to pray. There is nothing like a good prayer walk. There's nothing like a good prayer walk that has the power to heal depression. Scientific research has now shown us that talking to God about your hopes, fears, and dreams has the same effect on your brain as therapy. Let me say that again. This is scientific research has now found that talking to God about your hopes, fears, and dreams has the same effect on your brain as therapy. And I, I, I have a wonderful counselor. Uh, well, actually, that's what the Bible calls the Lord. He's the wonderful counselor. I have an awesome human counselor too. Human counselors are great, but you never know. Like, I have a great one now. The first one I went to, great guy, not a great fit. But like, you go and you're like, is, you, you, you fork over a hundred bucks or whatever. And you're like, is he going to talk like Oedipus complexes, Freudian daddy issues, Adlerian power grabs, like inferiority complex, Jungian dream analysis, Frankel's logotherapy. Like, what's he going to talk to me about next? Is it going to be ODD, OCD, ODD, ADD, like ADHD? What's he going to talk to me about? You don't know. But guess what? The Bible says the Lord is a wonderful counselor. Oh, and by the way, his counsel's free. Oh, and by the way, the Bible says that he's a wonderful counselor. You cast your cares on him. He cares for you. And guess what? Research now says if you talk to God about your hopes, fears, and dreams, it has the same effect on your brain as therapy. Wow. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. You say, well, what do I talk to God about? Some people say, how do I pray? Listen, when I'm talking to Jeff, I don't say, Oh, thou Mr. Gill, Jeff, 
the almighty pastor, I pray thee that thou wouldest give me a bottle of water. For I am trying to drink a gallon a day to stay uber hydrated in the name of Mr. Gill. Amen. I don't say that. I say, hey, Jeff, you got any water bottles? Sure. Boom. I, I don't know why we have to feel like we have to posture when we pray. You know what the Bible says about Moses? He spoke mouth to mouth, face to face with God as a man would speak to his friends, as, as his friend. Like Moses spoke to God like a friend. People say, how do I pray? I just say, do you know how to talk? Perfect. There it is. There it is. It's really that simple. You, you know, you can even talk to God about your girl problems. I'm serious. You can even gossip to God. Have you read the Psalms? Have you read the imprecatory Psalms? Break, break his teeth, Lord. And you know what happens when you pray? You know what happens when you do this? You pour out your heart at all times, as the psalmist said, and he removes the bitterness and starts to empower you to pray for your enemies and to love them. Because you can't put someone on your hit list till you put on your prayer list. Try, it's really hard. But, but what's amazing is you can talk to God. You can gossip to God. God's not like, oh my gosh, she said that about you, Ben. I can't believe it. Now that you told me this, I'm going to look at her totally different now. What a juicy deet. No, God already knows. He already knows. Talk to him. Talk to, really. And you know what science shows? That if you really, in, in, in an engaged way, talk intentionally to God, the frontal lobe of your brain activates into its highest intellectual capacity and you boost your brain power. In other words, you get smarter by praying. Research is now showing. Pretty, pretty powerful. Number two, scripture, this is a fun one, ready? This is a long title, but hang with me. Scripture, scholar, scuba gear. Okay, that's number two. Scripture, scholar, scuba gear. So I want to start a pillow embroidery company where I, I make these, maybe Jeff, you'll be a partner with me on this. Maybe this will be a new business entrepreneurial venture, but like pink, flu- I'm, I'm talking about pink, fluffy, lacy pillows. Okay. Only, you know how people put Bible verses on their embroidery on the pillows? Like I can do all things through Christ and God works all things together for the good. And there's a future and hope. I want to do all the verses that no one quotes. Like, how about this one? I want to put on a pillow. Your palace is a hut in a field of cucumbers. You know, that's a Bible verse. People are like, that's in the Bible. Yeah, Isaiah said that to the king. He said, your palace is a hut in a field of cucumbers. Wouldn't that be sick on like a fluffy, lacy pillow? It's like, why'd you do that? Well, they put other Bible verses on pillows. Why can't I do this? Or like, how about this? Are you still so dull? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great on a pillow? I think that'd be funny. Like a pink, fluffy, lacy pillow. Jesus said that to Philip. Or how about this? Your father's the devil. Wouldn't that be great with pink lace? Your father's the devil, which just some context there. Jesus was really nice to just about everybody, but, but like prostitutes, tax collectors, so nice to them. Pharisees, he had a problem with, right? He had a problem with them. So he said, your father's the devil to the religious elite. And here's why. This is actually pretty funny. Jesus was a king at roasting. They're like, at least we know who our dad is. What What did that mean? Well, your mom, virgin birth. Yeah, right. She was sleeping around so much. You don't even know who your dad is. And so you know what Jesus said? Oh, well, I know who your dad is. Your father's the devil. <laughs> that just, he just cooked him. But wouldn't that be great on a fluffy, lacy pillow? I'm not really going to start this pillow embroidery company. I'm just saying, there are so many verses in the Bible that people don't know are there. There are over, count them, 3,500 promises in the Bible. How many of those do you know? I'm, I'm not saying you have to know them, but like, why wouldn't you want to? 
There are over three, I heard you say, I know like five. There are, but there's over 3,500 of them. And so if you're willing not just to jet ski across the surface of the Bible, but put on your Navy SEAL scripture scholar scuba gear and go deep like into Ephesians, strengthen with might by the power of the spirit and the inner man, you're going to find that there are so many verses that will meet your problems. You say, I got a lot of problems. Good news. There are over 3,500 promises in the Bible. So you'll be just fine. (laughs) Number three, we're going to get really practical with this one. The magic number of greatness. Okay. Number three, the magic number of greatness. Let me explain this. In the Bible, Solomon cooks lazy people. You remember he said, the lazy person says, there's a lion in the street, therefore I cannot go to work. Could you imagine calling your boss? Like, I can't, I can't come into Starbucks today and work the shift because I'm afraid a lion's going to be in the streets. Your boss is like, you live in America. So too, in, in an Israelite town, there wouldn't just be a lion roaming the streets. Solomon said that just as a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man upon his bed. You know how that is? The alarm goes off, snooze, roll back over like a door on the hinge. So your snooze, you know, every 10 minutes snooze. That's what Solomon said. I love how uh, Solomon said that the, the sloth, the sluggard, he will, he will hunt his food but he's too lazy to build a fire to cook it. Now, that for our generation is a word. You know Hot Pockets? It takes two minutes to make Hot Pockets, but we are not patient enough to wait the extra 30 seconds required to let them cool off. How many of us burn our tongue on Hot Pockets? (laughs) So Solomon's just like roasting these lazy people. But you know what Solomon said about people who work hard? We're, We're getting very practical here. Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, hard work means prosperity. Only fools idle away their time. Again, he said, work hard and become a leader, NLT. Work hard and become a leader in the Proverbs. Be lazy and become a slave. So Solomon talked a lot about the importance of hard work. A lot of people think work is the result of the fall. If, if, you, if your theology is that work is a curse, newsflash, you will be depressed from nine to five, Monday through Friday, 40 hours a week, you'll be depressed if you think, oh, well, work is a curse. Friends, work is not a curse. What is the, Adam was called to be a gardener, tend the garden and keep it before he ate the forbidden fruit in the story. Before original sin was original blessing. The curse was that he would have to sweat and pull up weeds where there once were flowers and he was expelled from the garden. That was the curse. So the Bible says, watch this. Jesus is the last Adam who goes back into a garden And the first place the last Adam bleeds is from where? The sweat of his brow when he sweat great drops of blood to reverse the curse and redeem Adam's work. Your work matters. Your work matters. And that's what I want to tell you. Why, out of all the apostles that were with Jesus, why was Paul more influential than any of the the 12 that were with Jesus or Matthias who replaced Judas? Why? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, by the grace of God, I have worked harder than all the other apostles. He just outworked everybody. That's why he wrote 14 books of the New Testament. And what I'm trying to tell you is when you're depressed, here it is. This is, this is tough love. This is something I needed. Stop crying and start sweating. I realize we need to mourn. I realize we need to process, but there comes a moment where you have to stop waiting for some opportunity to roll up and you got to roll up your sleeves. And you say, it's time to go to work. This is the magic number of greatness. It's called the 10,000 hour rule. 
Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it in the book Outliers, where he found anybody who masters a craft and becomes world-class has to practice for 10,000 hours. So during my worst season of depression, I used these timers and I just started clocking 11,073 hours and five years into my craft. And it helped me get out of depression because it gave me a purpose. I was so tired of just sitting there thinking about existential horrors and having this ontological nausea. And I started saying, no, I got to do something. I got to work. God made us for work. And if you're not working, if, if we're just sitting around waiting for opportunities to roll up rather than our sleeves, we're like, God, well, doesn't faith move mountains? And then God hands us a shovel and he says, yeah, get to work. <laughs> you, you pick it up when I throw it down. This is huge. This is huge. And look at the Beatles. The Beatles were a classic example of the 10,000 hour rule. They were not just these mop top boys from Liverpool with the X factor. And they came to America during the British invasion. And that's why they were so successful on the Ed Sullivan show. The reason the Beatles were so successful is because before they ever came to America, they had played more live shows than most bands do in their entire career before they ever even came stateside. They were playing at a club in Hamburg, Germany, seven nights a week, eight hours a night. Probably felt like eight days a week. Are there any Beatles fans here? But anyways, they just outworked everybody. And I just want to encourage you, like, like get, get in your 10,000 hours. What's your calling in life? Is it to be a mother? Good news. During COVID, you're going to get a lot of hours into your craft of learning how to raise kids. I don't know if it's art. I don't know if it's studying the scriptures, but, but get to work. Get to work. Number four. We're going to be very practical again here. Number four. Endorphins, anyone? Endorphins, anyone? Have you noticed how in the Bible, Jesus turned down the archetypal sex, money, power, you know, fulfilling physical lust, turning rocks into bread, bowing down to the enemy to get all the kingdoms of the world and their power, showing off, jumping off the temple. He turned down all of these temptations when? When he had gone on a 40-day hike through a desert with no food. <laughs> We're not talking about a juice fast. You know, like the trendy, like, juice fast on Instagram and stuff. Like, oh, I'm juice fasting right now for five days. And, and that's great, by the way. Juice fasts are fantastic but we're talking about not eating a thing for 40 days while hiking through a desert. And friends, there's something that happens when your flesh dies, your spirit wakes up. When you push your body to its limits, the heavens start to open. And guess what? It was right after that, that Jesus did his first miracle. Why did Paul talk so much about sports? He talked about the mastery. He talked about wrestling. He talked about boxing. He talked about shadow boxing. He talked about endurance running. He talked about epictine ominos, which was a Greek word for a runner going hard out for the finish in Philippians chapter three. There were even in Ephesus, the famous Panionian games. There were the Isthmian games in Corinth. There were the Olympic games in Athens. So Paul talked a lot about sports. And what I found is that there's something about like pushing your body that actually starts to heal your mind. Did you know, this is true. Research shows a 40 minute jog has the same effect on your brain as an antidepressant. Let me say that again. A 40 minute jog has the same effect on your brain as an antidepressant. So what happens when you exercise is you release endorphins in your body, which trigger opioid receptors in your brain, which start to flood your body with a natural morphine-like pain minimizer. These are chemicals God naturally put in your body. You can have painkillers, pain minimizers, opioid receptors, endorphins that you simply release 
through exercise. I'll tell you, this really helps me, but this, this morning I was doing Navy SEAL training with my friend Chad Williams. He was SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 7. And whenever I'm here in Southern California, most of the time I try to have him put me through SEAL training because there's nothing that clears the mental cobwebs from the brain, like, like just making your flesh die and pushing your body to its limits. You say, I don't like SEAL training. Well, 30-minute walk. 30-minute walk. Research shows if you do that six times a week, that's big. Three times a week, even that helps your hippocampus in your brain. I'm just saying God has put these natural chemicals in our body that help with depression, endorphins that you activate through exercise. I'm running out of time. Let's go a little shorter. Number five, rewrite your story. Everyone say, rewrite your story. Are you having like a quarter millennial life crisis and you're like, I, I've lost the plot. I don't know where my life's going. I'm not happy with how things have turned out. Let me tell you, the Bible says that the Lord is the author and finisher of our faith. Psalm 139 says, all our days are written in his book. Malachi says that when we speak words honoring his name, he hearkens. The word in Hebrew is used of a dog whose ears perk up when it hears something that interests him, like the voice of his master, and he writes it down in a book of remembrance. What does that mean? God is writing down your days in a book. He is the author of your faith. And knowing that gives you so much courage in the middle of the story because when the plot seems to be dark, you know there's a spoiler alert. Revelation says that all tears will be wiped off of our faces. How much courage does that give us characters in the middle of the story? No matter how bad things get, no matter how many orc dungeons we face or fiery arrows are coming our way or how many Darth Vaders we have to fight. Like when we're in the middle of our story, it can feel so dark. But guess what? We have a spoiler alert. We know that all tears, Revelation says, will be wiped off of our faces. And because of this, we can have courage in the middle of our story because God is an amazing rewriter of stories. You remember how the children of Israel, for, for a baby nation to be taken to Egypt, they were enslaved in this bondage. Then they passed through, watch this, water, the Red Sea, to wander in a wilderness for 40 years. So Jesus, as a baby, is taken to Egypt. He then passes through water, the Jordan River, to wander in a wilderness for 40 days. Who's writing these parallels? Matthew. Who is Matthew writing to? A Jewish story. Both Jesus and Israel were taken to Egypt as infants. They then passed through the water and they wandered through a wilderness for 40 days, 40 years. Why is Matthew telling this? Because Israel was an occupied territory, a defeated foe. The Romans had vanquished them. And what was Matthew saying? Jesus is rewriting your story. Friends, the Lord is an amazing rewriter of stories. So don't give up in the middle of the plot. Number six, this is a fun one. Own your oddness. Own your oddness. Everyone say, own your oddness. Your Your oddities or your commodities? Paul said, when I am weak, then am I strong. And Nehemiah says, God turns a curse into a blessing. So you know more than five. There's one right there. In the Bible, this is fun. There are three left-handed individuals mentioned by name. And they all come from the same tribe. They come from the tribe of Benjamin. The name Benjamin means son of my right hand. So all the southpaws mentioned by name individually in the Bible come from the right-handed tribe. All the lefties are from the right-handed tribe. They didn't fit in. Do you ever feel like you don't fit in? It's because you're supposed to stand out. (laughs) Do you ever feel like you're different? It's because God wants you to make a difference. So one of these southpaws was named Ehud. 
Now, Ehud goes into the presence of the wicked king of Moab, who had been ruling over Israel for 18 years. His name was Eglon. And the Bible says that he was a very fat man. That'd be another great pillow right there. Eglon was a very fat man. And the Bible says, thy word is truth. So when it calls him a very fat man, we're not saying, oh, this guy had to lose a few pounds. We're saying Jabba the Hutt. This guy had his own zip code. (laughs) Exercise, no way. He said extra fries, right? The body is a temple, but sometimes we add additions. That's Aglon, right? Just this massive guy, this massive guy. So, So the Bible says that Ehud sneaks into the presence of Aglon, stabs him with a dagger, and the, the, his sword disappears in the fat. He had so much cellulite, it actually swallowed up the sword. Who said the Bible is boring? This is gnarly stuff. So Ehud, watch this, then leaves the palace of the king and he goes and wipes out 10,000 lusty men of Moab. Now the question is, how did a guy who's an Israeli sneak into the presence of a Moabite king with a dagger? Like, how do you even do that? Well, the reason is, is because back then historically, left-handed people were considered cursed. And so when the palace guard would frisk you, like when TSA would frisk you, they would basically, they would basically frisk your left hip. Why? Because if you're right-handed, where do you draw your sword? From your left hip. But Ehud was a southpaw from the right-handed tribe. And this left-hander member, Ehud, he snuck into the presence of the king because they evidently didn't frisk his right hip. Why would you do that? Left-handed people are cursed. He has no business in the presence of a king. So his curse became his blessing. Where he was weak, there he was strong. He could have said, God, why did you make me this way? Little did he know that would help him fulfill his destiny. The very thing that made him odd helped him fulfill his destiny. Do you ever wonder, like, why did God make me this way? I remember I used to, my dad, he's a legendary Bible teacher. So he teaches from a stool a lot. And I used to, like, try to sit on a stool and teach. And I was, like, so kinetic, nervous, and I couldn't sit on a stool. Finally, my dad said, Ben, stop trying to teach from a stool. If you're Tigger on steroids, that's your personality. Just go do you. And I, I got so much happier then. You're, you'll be so much more joyful if you just say, I, classic verse, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm going to own my oddness. The very thing that others think makes me cursed is actually going to help me fulfill my military mission as you're strengthened with might by the power of the spirit and the inner man. Number seven, friend ventures. Would you all say that with me, friend ventures? The Bible says, if you walk with the wise, you will become wise. The Bible says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an excellent spirit. The Bible also says, Daniel had an excellent spirit. Why? Why does it say that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an excellent spirit, and it says Daniel had an excellent spirit? It's because spirits are transferable. If you walk with the wise, you become wise. That's why Daniel had an excellent spirit, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an excellent spirit. Spirits are transferable. They hung out with each other. That's why the Bible says the apostles in the early church, they continued steadfastly in koinonia, in fellowship. They were constantly going through life together. Friends, I don't even really need to meet you. I can just meet your five closest friends and I'll tell you who you are and where you're going. We can all do that. You are the median average of the five people you spend the most time with. So if your friends are Larry, Curly, and Mo, good luck. I'm just saying, like, can, can I give a big, big revelatory newsflash here? Maybe if you're depressed, it's because you're hanging out with depressing people. <laughs> I'm just saying, 
For a lot of years, I was depressed because I hung out with depressing people. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about your family. I'm not talking about the people you work with. I'm saying of your own volition, the the friendships that you're choosing to invest in. I'm not saying if people are depressing, write them off. No, reach out to them, love them. But as far as the friendships that you're investing in, that's going to make an influence on you. Are you getting around the people with an excellent spirit? Are you getting around the joyful people of the fruit of the spirit of joy? The people who give you hope, because if you run with skunks, you're going to smell like one. Do you know what healed me of depression? Friends, it wasn't like a deep prayer meeting where the veins on my neck were bulging or more existential navel gazing. You know what healed me of depression? A bunch of friends with their skateboards who showed me life could be fun again. Friend ventures with God and squad. Number eight, heaven. Everyone say heaven. Heaven. After the passing of my sister and my brother, I had to really dig in my heels and think, what do I believe happens when we die? Do you want to know the quickest way to be depressed? Paul said, if we do not believe in the resurrection from the dead, we above all men are most miserable. Jesus didn't just hang on a cross. The message of the universe is there is an empty tomb. Friday's here, but Sunday's on the, it's coming, it's on the way. And Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Just as Paul is in prison, comforting those in Ephesus, strengthening them with might by the power of the spirit in the inner man. So Jesus, he was about to die and he's comforting his disciples. Right before he dies, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. The word troubled in Greek is shudder. Do not let your heart shudder. Don't have a heart quake. You believe in God. Believe also in me and my father's house. There are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. Jesus said, whoever believes on him who has sent me has passed from death into life. Do you know what science can't explain? Why all over the world, science is now validating this, and this maintains majority support, that even in cultures where belief in God is relatively low, belief in the afterlife or some persistence of consciousness beyond death, somehow most people believe in an afterlife all over the world. How do you explain that? There's no social utility, no Darwinian explanation, no evolutionary principle that can explicate why we love in the present those who died in the past. Song of Solomon says, many waters cannot quench love. Love demonstrates the immortality of the soul. Why is it that people just tend to believe that something happens when we die? How how do you explain that? Ecclesiastes 3.11 gives us the answer. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity in our hearts. God hardwired eternity into you. Number nine, Elroy. Everyone say Elroy. The first time God was ever nicknamed in the Bible was by an Egyptian slave girl who was an immigrant named Hagar. And she's dying in a desert and she says, you are Elroy the God who sees when God rescued her. The name Elroy means the God who sees. Do you know why so many people cut themselves? Because they're trying to, through transference and sublimation, move the pain from their mind to their, to their body to distract their mind. But sometimes it's a bid for help. Do you see? I, I really want to say something very gently, but sometimes I hear people say, oh, that person's threatening suicide because they just want attention. And my, my contention with that argument is this. If they're so depressed and suicidal that they'll cut themselves or threaten suicide because they want to be seen, then that's a cry for help, not to judge them, but to love them even more. It, it, it was, 
We all want to be seen. And that's why Hagar says, you are the God who sees. You see me. Friends, if you're depressed today, you might say, does anybody see me? Does anybody see what I'm going through? I have good news. God is El Roy. He's the God who sees. You know what's crazy? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And who is God? El Roy, the God who sees you. And Jesus, he, he's, he's a brilliant master therapist. Like, remember how Peter denied Jesus three times when a little girl peer pressured him? And it says that Peter denied him next to a charcoal fire. Jesus dies. The, the story goes, he dies, rises again, then builds, watch this, Jesus builds what? A charcoal fire. And he has Peter tell him three times that he loves him. Because Peter would have been traumatized by these triggers, three charcoal fires. So Jesus builds a charcoal fire and has Peter tell him three times that he loves him to make up for the three times that he denied him, which is actually the modern technique of psychodrama where you walk somebody through their triggers to retrain their brain and reframe their pain. In other words, Jesus was like a master therapist 19, 18, 1900 years before this stuff was even invented. And I'm telling you, he sees your suffering, but he also sees the cure you need. He's the God who sees. Number 10, let God love on you. And we're beginning our initial descent. Let God love on you. Did you know that in the Bible, it never says, how are you guys doing over here? I haven't looked over here enough. You guys chilling? Be on this little pillar? You guys good? Okay. So watch this. It says that, the, okay, so the, the disciples in the Bible, it never says that they were amazed that Jesus walked on water. It does not say they were amazed that he rose from the dead. There's no story that says they were amazed that he rose from the dead. Did you know that the disciples weren't even amazed when Jesus fed 5,000 people with a Lunchable? (laughs) There's only one time it says that the disciples were amazed. Does anybody know when it was? It says the disciples were amazed when Jesus spoke with a woman. It's the only time in John 4. Why? Why? Because he spoke to a Samaritan woman and that is his longest conversation. Now, here's what you say, why are they amazed? You got to understand the history. Back then, rabbis taught that if a Jewish Rabboni prolongs conversations in the street with a woman, he will in the end inherit Gehenna. In other words, the rabbi said, you'll go to hell if you talk in public with a woman for too long as a man, as a rabbi. Not only that, but Samaritan women, this was a troglodytic Neanderthal society of knuckle-dragging cavemen with the patriarchal paradigm of oppressing women. Basically, these men were oppressing Samaritan women. Samaritan women were considered to have less value than a man's donkey. And so you're not allowed to talk to them, and they have less, they're a possession, they're a thing. You're, they have less value than a person's donkey. So what does Jesus do? His longest, this gives me chills, his longest conversation, and it is a conversation of love and forgiveness and grace is with who? A Samaritan woman. And that's why it says the disciples were amazed. Do you feel like that Samaritan woman? Maybe you're a woman here and you've been objectified. Your possession in the eyes of men. Do you feel like you're marginalized, disenfranchised, pushed to the edges, pushed to the margins? Good news. You'll be amazed at how much the Lord goes after you, at how much he targets you with his love. Let God love the heavens right into you and the despair clean out of you. 
We live in a consumeristic, capitalistic, free enterprise society where nobody wants a free lunch. We have to earn it. We have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. So through this meritocracy, we have to earn things, but that's not how God's love works. Ephesians says it's by grace through faith. Romans says in hope. Friends, let God just love. Don't do anything. Let him love the heavens right into you and the despair clean out of you and perfect love will cast out fear because fear causes anxiety and Proverbs says anxiety in the heart causes depression, but a good word will make it glad and this is the good word, the good news, the gospel. God so loves you. And let's close here. Number 11. Sorry, I did go long, but I had a lot to say. We'll close here. Number 11, dreamality. Everyone say dreamality. We'll just keep this one simple. Like Joseph, you're going to have dreams. Pharaoh's going to have nightmares. But we'll have nightmares and dreams in life, but we conquer our nightmares because of our dreams. Friends, there have been some crazy stuff that's happened in 2020. No wonder so many people are depressed. But I want to tell you this that if you fulfill the meaning of life, which is to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God, then your heart's desires and God's plans for your life begin to sync up like Bluetooth pairing devices. And you're like on the same wavelength when it comes to your desires and his plans. So Psalm 20 says, may the Lord grant you your heart's desire. Psalm 21, two says, the Lord has granted me my heart's desire. Psalm 37, four says, delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 145, 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. The psalmist says he satisfies the desire of every living thing. Proverbs 10, 24 says, the desire of the righteous will be granted. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is as a tree of life. What are the dreams and desires that God put in your heart? Delight in him, not the deceitfully wicked heart who can know it of the old covenant, but the new covenant wherein he gives you not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, a regenerated heart wherein he writes the laws on the tablets of your heart. Delight in him and let him give you the desires of your heart. So many people say, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't really have any dreams. No, the Bible says old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Paul said, I've not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. We just don't know what our vision or dream is because so often we bury it under the rubble of what people think of us, of the odds of success, of are we going to failure, of the fear of the possible outcome. We need to stop put all that aside, stop fearing and say, I'm going to delight in you. And I thank you, God, that you give me the desires of my heart. So friends, my dad always taught me this. God doesn't put desires in you to frustrate you. He puts desires in you to fulfill you. He doesn't put desires in your heart to frustrate you, but to fulfill you as you walk with him, as you delight in him, as you enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. So my friends, there are your 11 weapons, and it's, I write way more about it in the book, but there are 11 weapons to defeat the dark lord of depression. We are going to change our whole perspective. We are not going to be the mope generation. We are going to be the hope generation. We're going to change our whole outlook because outlook determines outcome. And when your outlook gets bleak, try the uplook because if you change the way you look at things, Things will change the way they look. The problem is never the problem. The problem is our perception about the problem and our hopelessness about a problem is a bigger problem than our problems. And when our problems are too big for us, they're just the right size for God. So our praise will be a problem for our problems. Why are you cast down? Oh my soul, hope thou in God. He is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. He has the healing balm of Gilead. We will defeat depression in the power of God's name, strengthened with might through the animating power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, would somebody say amen? Come on. This is big. We're going to win this battle. There's going to be blood in the battle and we're going to fight, but we're going to win this thing. We're going to win this thing. We're going to win, guys. 
We have the fruit of the spirit, which is joy. We're going to win. Paul's writing this from prison. We're strong. We're strong by the power of the spirit in the inner man. Father, we're so grateful for this time tonight, and we pray. Lord, I want to pray whoever is here tonight, and God, they're struggling. Their, their minds are filled with thoughts that are not from you. Lord, we pray that you'd be their deliverer, their strength, that these 11 things would be tools in that great toolbox that we have from heaven. Lord, that you would instruct us in your, in your wonderful ways. Lord, your great plans. Lord, that we would dig deep. Go where you want us to go. Be what you want us to be. Lord, we're so thankful for Ben. We pray that you'd bless him. That you'd bless his ministry. Lord, that you'd strengthen us uh, with great resolve to live lives that are pleasing to you and that are pleased by you. Lord, would you pour out upon us blessings we can't contain. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.